Welcome to the Customer Experience Management Podcast, hosted by Anders Gustafsson and Carlos Velasco. In this episode, Anders interviews Dr. Nanook Verholst about neuroscience and customer experiences. A uh, warm welcome again to the Customer Experience Podcast. Uh, and today we have a very, very special guest, uh, one of my Co-authors Nanuk Verholst. Uh, sorry if I if I killed killed your last name. Uh, no no intention. Uh, but can you please tell us a bit about yourself? So hello everyone. Uh, thank you Anders for inviting me. I'm very happy to uh, be here. Uh, and well, I'm uh, invited because I wrote a couple of papers uh, on neuroscience and applying neuroscience techniques in the service uh, environment uh, or on the customer experience. Uh, at this moment, I'm a senior researcher at the communication department Smits at the VUB. Uh, and I also teach uh, as a professor some marketing related uh, courses at the VUB in Brussels, the center of Europe. Warm welcome. Um, but let's let's get into it and 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 talk about sort of the article that the uh, or the articles that that you have written. Um, how would you define neuroscience? Well, uh, neuroscience is a very broad uh, thing. Eh? It's a huge domain, and how how I see it within uh, this podcast eh? and how I used it or utilized it. It's about st uh, studying the nervous system, and that's uh, the brain, the body, responses in the brains, actually everything in the body that you can uh, measure and link to behavior. That's how I uh, see it. So, so, what, so what, what do we learn uh, by doing it? How can we sort of understand people, our customers better if, if, if we do it? Well, that's a, a very big question to tackle because different components that you measure can have or can learn something different. We can learn something different from it. But overall, I think the added value of using neuroscientific uh, techniques is it can really help us to uh, understand better emotional processes, cognitive processes and mechanisms. Um, on the other hand, it can also help us to understand individual differences and group differences uh, better. Um, and we can use it to improve behavioral predictions. Uh, and for example, if I zoom in on understanding uh, affective processes, uh, for example, EMG and uh, facial EMG, it's sensors that you can put on muscles on your face. And then you can actually measure if there is a certain activation in a smiling muscle, let's say, and you could see if someone is uh, listening to this podcast, for instance, are they smiling at a certain point or are they frowning? Eh? Are they hating this podcast or are they loving it? Eh? So you can learn something from the experience, the affection or emotional experience someone is having uh, at that time. Whereas you can also use to, to go and see on individual uh, differences. For example, uh, person one might have higher testosterone levels versus person two, and they might actually act differently in real life depending on their uh, level of testosterone. And this is something we actually often don't think about. We live our lives. We just assume we all function in physically in the same way, but that's actually not, not the case. Uh, or even... 
maybe I drank too much coffee earlier on and I'm very stressed now, not because of this interview, but because of the coffee. Yeah? So it can really help us to understand um, us as humans yeah, in different facets uh, and consumers and also employees, of course. Yeah? Uh, but I do believe that using neuroscientific techniques, you can use it as companies, absolutely. But for me personally, the biggest value really lies in um, research. Uh, for researchers, I believe it's really interesting to apply neuroscientific techniques to study uh, behavior, study changes in our body, and to study reactions towards uh, stimuli in our uh, environments, and to uh, uncover what are the underlying processes? What is playing uh, inside of us, eh, in, our, in our body? In fact, everything what we do is in our body. Yeah? Um, so yeah, I'm really passionate about that idea. I, I'm, me too. Uh, I, I, I try to use uh, these tools as often as I can. Um, but to, to me, one of the real benefits uh, is really to sort of try to understand the process leading up to things. Uh, uh, we, in, in a lot of cases in, in, in research, we, we are sort of stuck with having uh, surveys at the, at the end of something. And, and it sort of relies on us remembering everything we have sort of been through. and, and uh, uh, having these types of tools, we, we, we probably better can capture the actual process without really interfering with, with what people are doing. That's absolutely and one of the, the biggest benefits of using several of these techniques. And I must have a, a caption that not every neuroscientific technique can do the same. We have an fMRI that's very static. You cannot measure uh, things happening or changing uh, very quickly, whereas with EEG, uh, the sensors that measure activation uh, of the brain uh, waves, that's very, I mean, that's in real time. Uh, and depending on what you want to do, you need a different tool. But you're absolutely right that the neuroscientific techniques have the potential to overcome really a bunch of biases that are linked to survey research. And well, I also love surveys. Eh? It's also something uh, cheap to, to do eh? and easy to apply. However, social desirability. Imagine, dear listener, I ask to you now, you don't see me, but if you would see a picture and I'm in front of you and I ask you, do you think I'm attractive? Well, you probably feel obliged to say, yes, you're not ugly. However, maybe you think that I'm really, really ugly. Yeah. And with a neuroscientific technique, you can measure the response to someone. So I could show you uh, my face, for instance, and see, do your pupils dilate? Do you find me attractive or not? Yeah. So it's a, a very different approach. You measure in real time often. Yeah. So if I ask you in two weeks, did you like this podcast that Anders made with Nanook Verhulst? Oh, yeah, it's two weeks ago, you will say overall yes or no, and that's it. But we have no idea if there are certain moments during this talk that you were disengaged or not engaged, or how did you physically respond to it? Did you really like it? Was it a positive overall experience? And with neuroscientific techniques, we would really be able to capture, okay, when are they smiling? When are they disengaging from this talk? 
data. So it's it's a very different approach. Also with survey research, and there are a lot of things that have an impact. For example, the order of the questions. You ask something and then you ask something else, but your, your question had an impact on the second answer. So you kind of exclude this type of uh, biases um, by using neuroscientific techniques. Of course, there are also down, downsides of using uh, uh, neuroscientific techniques. It's expensive, there can be some ethical concerns, it takes a lot of time and preparation. It's also not always perfectly clear what you are measuring. Eh? This is really a field that is still growing. We still have to learn a lot uh, about the human body, about the processes on how to measure things. Eh? And if you look at the last 10 years, there's really an acceleration of technology. 10 years ago, you needed uh, to really use certain sensors to measure heart rate by now with a webcam. Some people have algorithms to measure your heart rate based from the blood flowing through the vessels of your face with a webcam. Eh? And these things become more accurate and accurate. So um, I think the, the future looks bright eh, for applying neuroscientific techniques, eh, but we still need to learn a lot about it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's it's impossible to know what the brain is really doing, and, and not all brains are really equal. But but you, I, I think you're sort of touching uh, on something that, that uh, I wanted to discuss uh, more in detail, but, but later on. But but uh, uh, my perception of, of these neuroscience tools is that they tap into other sources of information. Uh, so you, questionnaires are fantastic. Uh, does capture a, a, a lot of information and, and it, this information can be used to predict behavior. But I think neuroscience is tapping into other sources that we cannot really get through by, by cognition. Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the, the issues, uh, let's say with the, with the survey, and it's not an issue because if you want to know if I ate a banana this morning or not, well, the best way is to ask me if I did. However, some things we just don't know. Okay, I'm myself, I'm a human, but I don't know what is going on in my body at all times. I don't know if a certain part of my brain is activated. I sometimes don't even know if I respond in a, in a if I have a stress response towards something. I can be fully uh, functioning and thinking I'm fine, but maybe I'm getting a bit hungry already and my concentration is going down. These, these are silly examples, but a lot of the processes in our body, and it's also about emotion. Eh? We always believe that we have everything under control, but that's, that's definitely eh, not the case. Eh? Emotions come up all the time. They change all the time. They fluctuate throughout, uh, throughout the day. Um, and a lot of these responses are automatic and unconscious, and we don't have them under control. And this is something I cannot ask you with a survey, something that you unconsciously are doing inside of yourself. Whereas with several of these neural techniques, we can actually tap into this unconscious processes that are happening in fact all the time. And if we go back to neurotransmitters and hormones or even genetics, well, Anders, I cannot ask you, well, 
uh, how is your personality different than mine because of your genes or because of your hormones? Eh? Maybe I'm uh, reacting differently today or tomorrow due to my hormone levels. And that is something that we can add by using neuroscientific techniques. So we really add new types of information to research. Yeah. And I personally, I really believe that combining different techniques, a survey or an experiment, neuroscientific techniques, both in real life as in an experimental setting, that this is in fact, in fact the way forward, eh? really combining different methods to enrich the research we do and maybe to draw uh, new theories or uncover uh, novel information in, the, in that way. Yeah, I exactly. Uh... But uh, sort of going back to the article uh, slightly, um, there is a classification into internal and external cues. Uh, what, what are those? Well, uh, um, external, I think it's clear. Things that are happening outside of yourself. For instance, you walk into a store, there is some lightning, that's an external cue. There is some music, there are other people, uh, things are happening. It's outside of the, your body. And all of these cues or stimuli, they have an impact on us. Uh, and they can have a different uh, impact, uh, even a promotion. Uh, oh, uh, you get a discount. That's an external cue. Uh, you see it and it has an impact on you. Whereas internal cues, there are things that are happening inside of your body sometimes triggered by an external uh, cue. I see a good looking guy walking on the street. Ah, I'm aroused. However, an internal cue, things are also changing inside your body at all times. And that's because we are trying to find a, a balance. Your body is always trying to keep balance between not hungry, um, being in a good, neutral neutral position let's say so if you're hungry it's an internal cue hey i'm hungry you have to give me sugar or a cookie or a banana so this is a cue coming from the inside and what is interesting is that these internal cues actually have an impact on a lot of things that we do in life without us realizing and there are some crazy professors that did very interesting studies for instance filling uh, the bladder uh, to pee with a balloon and to kind of stimulate that people had to go and pee and it seems they respond differently in decision making which is in, in fact crazy eh? that you might make a different decision based on an internal bodily thing happening eh? and um, what I think is also interesting is if people are hungry they might make different strate strategic decisions or they might become even more unethical. And this is really relevant because if we know that if you don't, um, if you're tired or if you're hungry or you don't get a break at work, that you might make uh, dangerous decisions, well, that actually tells us that we need this break yeah, or that we need lunchtime. So these types of uh, changes we should be aware of yeah, and they happen constantly. Absolutely. And, and I mean, in research, we talk about bottom up and top down, but this, this is not really exactly the same. I mean, the bottom up is, is similar, but, but the top down is, is sort of 
the the way of thinking there is that that you it's cognition that is driving uh, behavior but but what you're saying is that the internal could be other things happening uh, that we may not may or may not be aware of like being hungry or or uh, uh, unfocused or or uh, so we may make another decision based on 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 something that that is happening that we may or may not know of uh, yeah absolutely and of course uh, a lot of things happen because we think about it huh? Uh, or we think about the memory and it triggers another bodily change or it triggers our behavior. But what I think is interesting is that it's working in all directions. And it's very hard to, if you would ask me to really define this, honestly, I would say it's impossible. If you go and, and read in the literature about emotion, for instance, uh, there are many people that say, no, 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 emotions has nothing to do with the body. And then others say, no, 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 emotions, it's only bodily changes. So it's a very hard thing to, to wrap up. There are so many things happening at the same time that it's hard to really define what is going on there because there are external cues that have an impact on internal cues. There are internal cues that have an impact on other internal cues and they all work together. And you, because I see something and I did something before, I might respond differently. So it's really hard to narrow that down, I think. Yeah. Uh, that is fascinating. Uh, but but uh, yeah, we, we may not ever get close to, to what, what is really going on. And maybe we don't want to either. Um, but uh, going, going back a bit, bit again. Um, uh, these tools that we are using, um, it's sort of, uh, we, we look for reactions, right, in, in, in brains or, or uh, in hormones or, or uh, what's going on. Uh, uh, but can you talk a bit about sort of these? Sure. Or... How I see it, there are three broad uh, types of tools. Eh? Uh, one of them is neuroimaging tools, and they really go and scan or measure what is happening in the brain, uh, just in the in the brain in our head. Then there are neurophysiological tools, and they actually um, measure all the, the changes that are happening in our peripheral system, uh, in our body, eh? but we exclude the brain. Eh? So that's the easiest way uh, to remember it. And then there are biochemical tools, and that's to measure hormones and neurotransmitter levels. And this is with blood draws or urine samples or even saliva swaps uh, to, to measure how this, uh, this is happening. And it really depends. Eh? Cortisol is measured in a different way than serotonin and, and so forth. Uh, but to go back to these neuroimaging tools, eh? for example, uh, fMRI and EEG, um, what is important there is you have to decide, do you want to be accurate in measuring the location in the brain or do you measure accurately um, changes through time? And for example, with EEG, you can uh, measure, I can have you look at a video and during that time, I measure the changes in your brain. And one of the things you can do is to see if you approach or engage the con to the content and do you, consider it positive or negative. And this is, this the changes are measured very fast. Whereas with fMRI, 
they put you and I never done it and I, I really hope someone invites me once to do a study with them with an fMRI eh? uh, but it's very expensive eh? it's mainly in hospitals but this is very slow let's say so it's not about watching a video and quickly seeing if you're smiling or not during this video it's really to see if certain specific areas in the brain are activated and there it's about it's it's called spatial they really want to see which specific part in the brain is working for example imagine um you are doing sports eh? a certain motor area might be activated the question is if you are in an fmri scanner if you are imagining playing the sports are the same things popping up or not? That's, for example, a question you could uh, try to solve uh, there. Uh, a famous example is from uh, Hilke Plasman with wine, where they actually uh, show that if people believe they're drinking more expensive wine, that they, in fact, really in their brain, the pleasure activation is happening. The, so even though people might know that cheap wine versus um, expensive wine, and well, it was the same wine, of course, huh? that it might not be a difference. There is this kind of belief, oh, if it's expensive, it must be very tasty. Huh? And she showed that using an fMRI scanner, that in fact, there's an activation there and that indeed people believe higher price, higher quality, and, and the experience is better. Um, and then if we move on to neurophysiological tools, I believe they're way cheaper eh, compared to fMRI, for example. So it's more accessible eh, for researchers, but also for uh, companies. On top of it, it's easier because a lot of them are wireless. Eh? You can have, and actually the same goes for EEG, eh, technology improved. So you could actually wear an EEG set uh, while walking in the, in the store. Uh, but for example, measuring heart rate, um, galvanic skin response, that's how much are you sweating, uh, that indicates arousal. Um, or, and it can be stress, but it can also not be stress. Uh, that's something we don't know. If I send you into a retail uh, shop with a galvanic skin response and you're walking through the store and you start sweating more, I don't know, is this because you are walking fast? Is this because you're thinking about a stressful uh, assignment that you still have to finish for work? Or is it because you're totally aroused by the amazing cornflakes that you're looking at? So it's really important to pick different of these tools that measure different things and to go and combine them. And for instance, galvanic skin response is about arousal. doesn't say anything about if it's positive or, or negative. If you combine it with EEG, approach avoidance, you can actually add this into the mix. Um, but there's so another issue when you bring these different types of tools in here um, that... that uh, I have been thinking about a lot, really. Uh, we're com usually combining eye trackers and EEG. Uh, oh, sorry, EDA, uh, galvanic skin response. And, and eyes are so much faster than, than the skin is. So how, <laughs> how do you know when things have, has happened? Or is it that that triggered? Or is it something else? Because 
the eyes are, are way ahead of the skin and, and the skin takes time before it goes up and down. Yeah, that's uh, one of the things I find very hard uh, and I also don't have a solution on it. Eh? And I did some experience where indeed I would combine eye tracker, not because I wanted to uh, learn something about eye behavior, but just to capture at least as a control almost, okay, what's going on? Are they looking at certain things? But it's really hard to distinguish um, if you do a manipulation, let's say, in an experiment. Is my manipulation now having an effect or not? And that's also why it's really important to, if you do uh, experiments with neuroscientific techniques, to talk to your participants, to combine it also with a survey, yeah? and to combine as much data as you can, because it's really hard to distinguish exactly what is happening at which time. Uh, yeah, so that's a, that's a hard thing to do indeed. And it's, of course, it's also a bit of subjectiveness. Eh? And that's a, a, a hard thing there. Eh? A lot of these tools are considered more objective. And in a lot of ways, they are very objective. However, how you interpret them and how you use them to make sense of the world, there is a subjective element there. Eh? And I think that's with everything we do as researchers. And there is always an interpretation bias, let's call it. Um, and that's not different with neuroscientific techniques. No, I mean, uh, just to sort of go back to what, what, what you said previously, uh, uh, if there is a reaction when somebody is looking at something, uh, you can hopefully think that it's, it's a bottom-up thing that's happening, but you cannot know if it's the brain that, that is, uh, if, if you're thinking about something, uh, all of a sudden you don't know if, if it's that, that that's doing it or if it's actually what you're looking at at the moment exactly and that's something you you can never be 100 sure of of course if you do if you have 50 people uh, look at uh, two pictures let's say uh, and we see they all respond after seeing uh, picture a well i think we can safely assume that the response is due to the picture they were looking at at that point uh, um, so I think there is also something to do with the numbers, eh? how many people you, you, you work with. But indeed, eh? there's still always a possibility something else is going on. Uh, I, I don't think you got to the hormones before I, I broke, <laughs> intercepted you, your, your conversation or your, your discussion. Well, uh, yeah, for these bio biochemical tools, eh? of, uh, well... The, the way how you can measure uh, certain hormones and neurotransmitters is mainly with blood draws, urine samples, saliva. And well, let's be honest, that's very invasive. Yeah? If I have to, if you come to my lab and I have to say, ha, uh, you know what, I'm gonna draw your blood. That's a big thing to do. Yeah? Maybe a, a saliva swab is less uh, invasive, but it's, it's something that it has been used in research and there are some really cool uh, papers out uh, out there uh, but it's i think it's really interesting for from a research perspective but for a company for instance to study marketing definitely absolutely not no it's a big no no and and it's it, i i sort of would shy away from doing it just because all the ethical improvements i would need to get to do that uh, yeah. 
And well, there are some uh, indexes, and they're sometimes also under discussion. But for example, there is this two D two four index, and I, I always forget. But depending on how long certain fingers are, uh, it is uh, suggested that the prenatal testosterone that you were um, that that was actually in the womb when you were growing as a as a baby that it actually has an impact on um, yeah, on your behavior, like uh, stock market traders, for instance, uh, um, they seem to behave differently if, if that's one of their genetic threats. Um, but that's something that happened before, right? And it's, the, uh, and it's impossible, but, but uh, I, I always have to look at my own finger to sort of figure out what it is. But, but if your ring finger is longer than your pointing finger, then you're lower, lower on testosterone. If your pointing finger is longer than your ring finger, then you're higher. And, and uh, but, but uh, I mean, it's a very, very crude measure. And, and it, it also is affected by uh, if you're overweight. If, if you're overweight, uh, the testosterone get, gets distilled in the larger body mass. Uh, so you actually have less uh, testosterone uh, anyway. So it's a very, very true measure. Th these are things that are not maybe the best way to, to start from. Eh? However, I believe for, um, for researchers, it could be really interesting to do. Eh? And but we could even go further than that. You could manipulate uh, hormone levels you could have people drink uh, a certain um, fluid and then something increases and you could see if they respond differently uh, this is also ethically a very tricky thing to do however there might be some experiments that could be really interesting and useful for us as humans to understand how we work huh? but where does the where is the balance huh? that's that's another uh, matter but i I, I do see potential um, in in there as well. Yeah, I agree. But um, when do you think we will uh, see these in, in a real context? Or are we already seeing them? You mean like, uh, for instance, if the government would use uh, use it to, to see where we're walking around? Do you, do you, are you pointing towards that? Or do you mean yeah, for I mean, research? I mean, if you look at China, they, they are doing some of these already. They are all, already applying, uh, especially facial expressions, facial yeah. recognition. And, and, and yeah. um, some so, stores are also using eye trackers. So what is what I think is hard there is that if you ask me as a researcher, I get very excited. I'm like, oh, man, I would love to have cameras in the street, maybe just in one street eh? and, and to see how people um, emotionally respond to things that are happening in, in, in the street. Eh? And in fact, there are already a lot of sensors around this. Eh? Think about the smart city concept. Eh? It's booming. It's growing. Yeah. Um, data is being gathered at all times and it's about where are we driving and maybe not specifically as an individual but for example google well, they capture how many cars are driving somewhere they can say it's busy or not huh? uh, but also governments they are really into capturing data about their citizens and it's not necessarily with um 
with the perspective to control us. Eh? It's often with this idea, if we know how many cars are uh, driving here or how many people are gathering in this square, let's say, they would like to use that data to improve their policy making. Eh? So if that's the reason, you could say, well, that's a very positive uh, idea. However, there's also a danger in there because, yeah, am I going to look at who might be dangerous towards me as a government? That's a very different story. Yeah? And in China, they're really uh, following their citizens and have even a credit system and decide, ah, if you know some naughty people, you don't get a loan. That's terrible. Yeah? If you as a government start to use measured data to make policy decisions that really impact someone on an individual level, that's a very dangerous road we're walking. But of course, as a researcher, I'm like, oh, it could be very nice to, to measure these things and capture these things. Um, so it's, I think it's a, it's a thin line. And well, the thing is, we all have a webcam. So you, you could even... I, if I'm thinking, so for, for example, media companies and eh, communication companies, their wet dream is to measure um, the, the customer journey on over different touch points. Eh, because, oh, you're watching YouTube, you're watching a TV channel that is linked to media company A, then you're on Facebook looking at media company B, then you go to TikTok. Eh, so you're actually all the time moving on all these different communication channels and media. And well, media companies, they want to know what is my potential customer doing and how can I lure them to my platform? And how can I keep them to my platform? And how can I engage them? And well, for them, it would be probably very interesting to capture the customer while watching all these different things. And that's not happening right now. But if I, if you want to think a bit crazy or out of the box, you could even assume that at a certain point, companies might say, well, your webcam will be an eye tracker. And if you don't look at the commercial, you don't get to see the free content. And now I'm going, that's maybe yeah, a very no, negative I, but I mean, it's not that far-fetched because the webcam, webcam can be used as, a, as an eye tracker. And, and, and also we, we do, uh, we, we are sort of allowing for some things that are happening. Uh, so for instance, if you send your DNA for, for uh, sort of looking at wh wh where you're from in terms of DNA, uh, uh, that DNA has been used to, to, to uh, find criminals. Uh, yeah. on, on severe in severe cases and and uh, uh, if you have a, a, a one of these smart uh, uh, speakers uh, it monitors what you're saying so it, it they can sort of capture some of the things you have been talking about and and and, and uh, if if but in in a criminal case I mean, you can follow a, a, a cell phone if you want to and see what, where it's been uh, pretty accurate, accurately. So we, we are already seeing some of these things happening. Yeah. 
and what what I think is where the well, uh, and I don't even want to start about the privacy issue there eh, because that's a that's a, a thing we really have to start thinking about as a community as a society eh, because there are really huge issues ahead of us eh, if it's about capturing real time neuroscientific or not data, um, but. Where the danger lies is these things can you can be used for good, for good reasons to help a society, but they can also be used in a very uh, dangerous way. And imagine, and I'm just going to give a um, an Im imaginary example. Imagine if um, I do a study and I can see well a lot of people that have uh, a high hormone X. Huh? or a, spe a specific genetic threat, a lot of them, they start murdering people. Not all of them, but more than your average Joe. But, but you know, that that's already happening. Uh, yeah. So they, they look at the brain structure of the brain and see if you, if you have the capability to become a mass murderer. Well, but the danger lies in the fact that if a government starts saying, well, hmm, maybe we should lock up everyone that has this threat, although yeah. you might not become a murderer. No. And, and, that's, and I know they're doing certain studies on, on this as well. And I think the, there's a very thin line there. Eh? Or if you could say, well, hmm. And well, for example, eh, there were cases where uh, women or men had to pay different uh, prices for insurances. Eh? Now uh, that's not, in Belgium at least they don't do it. But well, if I could say well, people with this kind of uh, reaction, well, they have more car crashes. If then insurances are going to use that to make you pay a higher price, that's a very different uh, discussion. Eh? So, yeah. but but you know that that is also happening to some degree already. There's something called insure the box. Uh, so you, you get know. scored based on how 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 you're driving. So the, ah yeah yeah driving legally follow the uh, uh, speed limits and and, and uh, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. driving a good way and you get lower uh, insurance rates. And and how do ah it's true there was once an application to capture your driving behavior right. It's in, in the UK, have just, for uh, younger, younger drivers. Ah, here it only had a, a test case not so long ago. Yeah. Well, it's insane. Huh? And yeah. well, if you're a good driver, then it might be very interesting. Yeah? But as a society, we have to question if that's something we want. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so uh, what, what, what do you think the main ethical changes or challenges we have? Uh, what, 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 what do you think of that? I mean, we have started to talk about that, but, but uh, what would you say that? that uh... You mean when, when using neuroscientific techniques or in a, in a broader yeah. sense? Yeah. So, uh, well, first of all, uh, you're capturing very personal data. Um, so you have to handle that with great care. And I think it's really important if you conduct a study like this, that you go to an ethical board review and that you really think, okay, what am I doing? But some of these studies, they can also uncover 
uh, yeah, problems that individuals have that they might not know of. For instance, I once did an EEG study and the guy said, well, I have a problem with my brains, so I'm not sure if you if I will be a good participant because it will probably go everywhere. So, okay, he knew, so that's fine. Um, but you have to be aware of the fact that you're measuring things that maybe a person doesn't know themselves. And so I think it's very important to explain your participants what you're going to measure, that it's anonymous, that uh, you won't identify them and so forth. I think that's the, the key uh, there. And I also believe you have to think about before capturing this data, is it useful? And if it's um, if you don't need to do it for a certain study, I wouldn't do it. So the idea of just going to capture data, 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 and more data, I think that's not the, the right behavior. I think the right thing to do is to ask, what are my research questions? What do I want to know? And which tools will I use? And do they add value? And if they don't add value, I don't think we should do it. No, and, and I mean, the other take on this is really, do you know how to analyze the data? Uh, so it's sort of, if, yeah. if, if you don't know it, I mean, you may don't, you may not want to collect because it, it is complicated. It's, it's very complicated data and you have to clean it and in some case filter it. And so there is a lot and, of... And the, the main problem I see is that if you add multiple streams of data in there, uh, it complicates your analysis pro analyzing process dramatically. Uh, yeah, and even like there are a lot of uh, yeah technological issues, let's say, that you can uh, suffer from. And some years ago, I really uh, suffered to synchronize all different equipment that it would measure everything in the same time. Huh? And you could say, well, that's so easy because if it's on the same computer, well, unfortunately, it's not all on the same computer. And for different tools, you have different programs and different computers and different uh, hardwares. And you have to find a way to synchronize them perfectly. And if there is a delay of yeah. one second, all your data can go. And, the and, 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 and they usually run on different clocks as well. Yes. Yeah. So I didn't use the clocks. Eh? I used uh, another way, but it's really important to to test this up front. Eh? Test, 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 yeah. test many times up front um, and to be very careful about this. And there are really so many things that can go wrong with this types of study. It can be from people having a beard or wearing thick makeup or uh, are very sweaty just generally. Eh? Um, I once did a study in uh, in Italy, in Milan, and it was a very, very hot day, and the EEG sensors were just falling from the heads of the participants because it was just too hot. Well, eh? so it's really important to, uh, to think very well about this type of study to make sure it's in a very controlled setting that you do it in exactly the same way every time uh, and that you try a couple of times upfront because things will go wrong, I can guarantee. I totally agree. Thank you so much, Nanook. And it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast and, and uh, yeah, thank you so much.
Well, thanks for having me. It was uh, nice to uh, to talk about it. I hope uh, the listeners will enjoy it. I'm, I'm sure they will. Thank you so much.